This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Greatest Love Stories. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, chapters 23, 24, and 25, from Anna Sewell's Black Beauty. And now, chapter 23, A Strike for Liberty. One day, my lady came down later than usual, and the silk rustled more than ever. Drive to the Duchess of Bertwick's, she said, and then after a pause... "'Are you never going to get those horses' heads up, York? "'Raise them at once, and let us have no more of this humoring and nonsense.' "'York came to me first, while the groom stood at Ginger's head. "'He drew my head back and fixed the reins so tight that it was almost intolerable. "'Then he went to Ginger, who was impatiently jerking her head up and down against the bit, "'as was her way now. "'She had a good idea what was coming.' and the moment York took the rein off the turret in order to shorten it, she took her opportunity and reared up so suddenly that York had his nose roughly hit and his hat knocked off. The groom was nearly thrown off his legs. At once they both flew to her head, but she was a match for them and went on plunging, rearing, and kicking in the most desperate manner. At last she kicked right over the carriage pole and fell down, after giving me a severe blow on my near quarter. There is no knowing what further mischief she might have done had not York promptly sat himself down flat on her head to prevent her struggling, at the same time calling out, "'Unbuckle the black horse. Run for the winch and unscrew the carriage pole. Cut the trace here, somebody, if you cannot unhitch it.' One of the footmen ran for the winch, and another brought a knight from the house. The groom soon set me free from Ginger and the carriage and led me to my box. He just turned me in as I was and ran back to York." I was much excited by what had happened, and if I had ever been used to kick or rear, I'm sure I should have done it then, but I never had, and there I stood, angry, sore in my leg, my head still strained up to the turret on the saddle, and no power to get it down. I was very miserable, and felt much inclined to kick the first person who came near me. Before long, however, Ginger was led in by two grooms, a good deal knocked about and bruised. York came with her and gave his orders and then came to look at me. In a moment he let down my head. "'Confound these check-reins,' he said to himself. "'I thought we should have some mischief soon. Master will be sorely vexed. But there, if a woman's husband can't rule her, of course a servant can't, so I wash my hands of it. And if she can't get to the Duchess's garden party, I can't help it.' York did not say this before the men. He always spoke respectfully when they were by. Now he felt me all over, and soon found the place above my hock where I had been kicked. It was swelled and painful. He ordered it to be sponged with hot water, and then some lotion was put on. Lord Warwick was much put out when he learned what had happened. He blamed York for giving way to his mistress, to which he replied that in the future he would much prefer to receive his orders only from his lordship. But I think nothing came of it, 
for things went on the same as before. I thought York might have stood up better for his horses, but perhaps I am no judge. Ginger was never put into the carriage again, but when she was well of her bruises, one of the Lord Warwick's younger sons said he should like to have her. He was sure she would make a good hunter. As for me, I was obliged still to go in the carriage, and had a fresh partner called Max. He had always been used to the tight rein. I asked him how it was he bore it. Well, he said, I bear it because I must, but it is shortening my life, and it will shorten yours too if you have to stick to it. Do you think, I said, that our masters know how bad it is for us? I can't say, he replied, but the dealers and the horse doctors know it very well. I was at a dealer's once, who was training me and another horse to go as a pair. He was getting our heads up, as he said, a little higher, and a little higher every day. A gentleman who was there asked him why he did so. Because, said he, people won't buy them unless we do. The London people always want their horses to carry their heads high and to step high. Of course it's very bad for the horses, but then it is good for trade. The horses soon wear up or get diseased, and they come for another pair. That, said Max, is what he said in my hearing. Then you can judge for yourself. What I suffered with that rain for four long months in my lady's carriage, it would be hard to describe, but I am quite sure that, had it lasted much longer, either my health or my temper would have given way. Before that, I never knew what it was to foam at the mouth. But now the action of the sharp bit on my tongue and jaw, and the constrained position of my head and throat, always caused me to froth at the mouth more or less. Some people think it very fine to see this, and say, What fine-spirited creatures! But it is just as unnatural for horses as for men to foam at the mouth. It is a sure sign of some discomfort." and should be attended to. Besides this, there was a pressure on my windpipe, which often made my breathing very uncomfortable. When I returned from my work, my neck and chest were strained and painful, my mouth and tongue tender, and I felt worn and depressed. In my old home, I always knew that John and my master were my friends, but here, although in many ways I was well treated, I had no friend. York might have known, and very likely did know how that rain harassed me, but I suppose he took it as a matter of course that it could not be helped. At any rate, nothing was ever done to relieve me. We'll return with Chapter 24 right after these sponsor messages. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox, I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special limited time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. 
You'll like it. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And now Chapter 24, The Lady Anne or A Runaway Horse. Early in the spring, Lord Warwick and part of his family went up to London and took York with them. I and Ginger and some other horses were left at home for use, and the head groom was left in charge. The Lady Harriet, who remained at the hall, was a great invalid and never went out in the carriage, and the Lady Anne preferred riding on horseback with her brother or cousins. She was a perfect horsewoman, and as gay and gentle as she was beautiful. She chose me for her horse, and named me Black Oster. I enjoyed these rides very much in the clear cold air, sometimes with Ginger, sometimes with Lizzie. This Lizzie was a bright bay mare, almost thoroughbred, and a great favorite with the gentleman, on account of her fine action and lively spirit. But Ginger, who knew more of her than I did, told me she was rather nervous. There was a gentleman of the name of Blantyre staying at the hall. He always rode Lizzie, and praised her so much that one day Lady Anne ordered the side saddle to be put on her, and the other saddle on me. When we came to the door, the gentleman seemed very uneasy. "'How is this?' he said. "'Are you tired of your good black oster?' "'Oh, no, not at all,' she replied. "'But I am amiable enough to let you ride him for once, and I will try your charming Lizzie. You must confess that in size and appearance she is far more like a lady's horse than my own favorite.' "'Do let me advise you not to mount her,' he said. "'She is a charming creature, but she is too nervous for a lady. "'I assure you she is not perfectly safe. "'Let me beg you to have the saddles changed.' "'My dear cousin,' said Lady Anne, laughing, "'pray do not trouble your good careful head about me. "'I have been a horsewoman ever since I was a baby, "'and I have followed the hounds a great many times, "'though I know you do not approve of ladies hunting.' "'but still that is the fact, "'and I intend to try this Lizzie "'that you gentlemen are all so fond of, "'so please help me to mount, "'like the good friend you are.' "'There was no more to be said. "'He placed her carefully on the saddle, "'looked to the bit and curb, "'gave the reins gently into her hand, "'and then mounted me. "'Just as we were moving off, "'a footman came out with a slip of paper "'and message from the Lady Harriet. "'Would they ask this question for her "'at Dr. Ashley's and bring the answer?' The village was about a mile off, and the doctor's house was the last in it. We went along gaily enough until we came to his gate. There was a short drive up to the house between tall evergreens. Blantyre alighted at the gate, and was going to open it for Lady Anne, but he said, "'I will wait for you here, and you can hang Auster's rein on the gate.' He looked at her doubtfully. "'I will not be five minutes,' he said. "'Oh, do not hurry yourself.' "'Lizzie and I shall not run away from you.' "'He hung my rein on one of the iron spikes "'and was soon hidden among the trees. "'Lizzie was standing quietly by the side of the road "'a few paces off, with her back to me. "'My young mistress was sitting easily with a loose rein, "'humming a little song. "'I listened to my rider's footsteps "'until they reached the house "'and heard him knock at the door. 
there was a meadow on the opposite side of the road, the gate of which stood open. Just then some cart-horses and several young colts came trotting out in a very disorderly manner, while a boy behind was cracking a great whip. The colts were wild and frolicsome, and one of them bolted across the road and blundered up against Lizzie's hind legs, and whether it was the stupid colt or the loud cracking of the whip, or both together, I cannot say, but she gave a violent kick and dashed off into a headlong gallop. It was so sudden that Lady Anne was nearly unseated, but she soon recovered herself. I gave a loud, shrill neigh for help. Again and again I neighed, pawing the ground impatiently, and tossing my head to get the rein loose. I had not long to wait. Blantyre came running to the gate. He looked anxiously about, and just caught sight of the flying figure, now far away on the road. In an instant he sprang to the saddle. I needed no whip, no spur, for I was as eager as my rider. He saw it, and giving me a free rein, and leaning a little forward, we dashed after them. For about a mile and a half the road ran straight, and then bent to the right, after which it divided into two roads. Long before we came to the bend she was out of sight. Which way had she turned? A woman was standing at her garden gate, shading her eyes with her hand, and looking eagerly up the road. Scarcely drawing the rein, Blantyre shouted, "'Which way?' "'To the right!' cried the woman, pointing with her hand, and away we went up the right-hand road. Then for a moment we caught sight of her. Another bend, and she was hidden again. Several times we caught glimpses, and then lost them. We scarcely seemed to gain ground upon them at all.' An old road-mender was standing near a heap of stones, his shovel dropped and his hands raised. As we came near he made a sign to speak. Blantyre drew the rein a little. "'To the common, sir, to the common. She's turned off there.' I knew this common very well. It was for the most part very uneven ground, covered with heather and dark green furze bushes, with here and there a scrubby old thorn-tree. There was also open spaces of fine short grass, with ant-hills and mole-turns everywhere, the worst place I ever knew for a headlong gallop. We had hardly turned on the common when we caught sight again of the green habit flying on before us. My lady's hat was gone, and her long brown hair was streaming behind her. Her head and body were thrown back, as if she were pulling with all her remaining strength, and as if that strength were nearly exhausted. It was clear that the roughness of the ground— had very much lessened Lizzie's speed, and there seemed a chance that we might overtake her. While we were on the high road, Blantyre had given me my head, but now, with a light hand and a practiced eye, he guided me over the ground in such a masterly manner that my pace was scarcely slackened, and we were decidedly gaining on them. About halfway across the heath there had been a wide dike recently cut, and the earth from the cutting was cast up roughly on the other side. "'Surely this would stop them. "'But no. "'With scarcely a pause, Lizzie took the leap, "'stumbled among the rough clods, and fell. "'Blantyre groaned. "'Now, Oster, do your best.' "'He gave me a steady rein. "'I gathered myself well together, "'and with one determined leap "'cleared both dike and bank. "'Motionless among the heather, "'with her face at the earth, "'lay my poor young mistress. "'Blantyre kneeled down and called her name. "'There was no sound.' Gently he turned her face upward. It was ghastly white, and the eyes were closed. Annie, do speak! But there was no answer. He unbuttoned her habit, 
loosened her collar, felt her hands and wrists, then started up and looked wildly round him for help. At no great distance there were two men cutting turf, who, seeing Lizzie running wild without a rider, had left their work to catch her. Blantyre's hello soon brought them to the spot. The foremost man seemed much troubled at the sight, and asked what he could do. "'Can you ride?' "'Well, sir, I bean't much of a horseman, but I'd risk my neck for the Lady Anne. She was uncommon good to my wife in the winter.' "'Then mount this horse, my friend. Your neck will be quite safe, and ride to the doctor's, and ask him to come instantly. Then on to the hall. Tell them all that you know.' "'and bid them send me the carriage "'with Lady Anne's maid and help. "'I shall stay here.' "'All right, sir. I'll do my best. "'And I pray God the dear young lady "'may open her eyes soon.' "'Then, seeing the other man, he called out, "'Here, Joe, run for some water, "'and tell my missus to come as quick as she can "'to the Lady Anne.' "'He then somehow scrambled into the saddle, "'and with a gee-up and a clap at my sides "'with both his legs, he started on his journey.' "'making a little circuit to avoid the dyke. "'He had no whip, which seemed to trouble him, "'but my pace soon cured that difficult, "'and he found the best thing he could do "'was to stick to the saddle and hold me in, "'which he did manfully. "'I shook him as little as I could help, "'but once or twice on the rough ground he called out, "'Whoa! Steady!' "'On the high road we were all right, "'and at the doctor's and the hall "'he did his errand like a good man and true. "'They asked him in to take a drop of something.' "'No, no,' he said. "'I'll be back to him again by shortcut to the fields, "'and be there before the carriage.' "'There was a great deal of hurry and excitement "'after the news became known. "'I was just turned into my box. "'The saddle and bridle were taken off, "'and a cloth thrown over me. "'Ginger was saddled and sent off in great haste for Lord George, "'and I soon heard the carriage roll out of the yard. "'It seemed a long time before Ginger came back, "'and before we were left alone.' "'and then she told me all that she had seen. "'I can't tell much,' she said. "'We went a gallop nearly all the way, "'and got there just as the doctor rode up. "'There was a woman sitting on the ground "'with a lady's head in her lap. "'The doctor poured something into her mouth, "'but all that I heard was, "'She's not dead. "'Then I was led off by a man to a little distance. "'After a while she was taken to the carriage, "'and we came home together.' I heard my master say to a gentleman who stopped him to inquire that he hoped no bones were broken, but that she had not spoken yet. When Lord George took Ginger for hunting, York shook his head. He said it ought to be a steady hand to train a horse for the first season, and not a random rider like Lord George. Ginger used to like it very much, but sometimes when she came back I could see that she had been very much strained, and now and then she gave a short cough. She had too much spirit to complain, but I couldn't help feeling anxious about her. Two days after the accident, Blantyre paid me a visit. He patted me and praised me very much. He told Lord George that he was sure the horse knew of Annie's danger as well as he did. I could not have held him in if I would, said he. She ought never to ride any other horse. I found by their conversation that my young mistress was now out of danger and would soon be able to ride again. This was good news to me, and I looked forward to a happy life. Chapter 25. Reuben Smith Now I must say a little about Reuben Smith, who was left in charge of the stables when York went to London. No one more thoroughly understood his business than he did, and when he was all right, there could not be a more faithful or valuable man. 
He was gentle and very clever in his management of horses, and could doctor them almost as well as a farrier, for he had lived two years with a veterinary surgeon. He was a first-rate driver. He could take a four-in-hand or a tandem as easily as a pair. He was a handsome man, a good scholar, and had very pleasant manners. I believe everybody liked him. Certainly the horses did. The only wonder was that he should be in an under-situation and not in the place of a head coachman like York. But he had one great fault, and that was his love of drink. It was not like some men, always at it. He used to keep steady for weeks or months together, and then he would break out and have a bout of it, as York called it, and be a disgrace to himself, a terror to his wife, and a nuisance to all that had to do with him. He was, however, so useful that two or three times York had hushed the matter up and kept it from the Earl's knowledge. But one night, when Reuben had to drive a party home from a ball, he was so drunk that he could not hold the reins, and a gentleman of the party had to mount the box and drive the ladies home. Of course, this couldn't be hidden, and Reuben was at once dismissed. His poor wife and little children had to turn out of the pretty cottage by the park gate and go where they could. Old Max told me all this, for it happened a good while ago. But shortly before Ginger and I came, Smith had been taken back again. York had interceded for him with the Earl, who was very kind-hearted, and the man had promised faithfully that he would never taste another drop as long as he lived there. He had kept his promise so well that York thought he might safely be trusted to fill his place while he was away. And he was so clever and honest that no one else seemed so well fitted for it. It was now early in April, and the family was expected home sometime in May. The light brougham was to be fresh done up, and as Colonel Blantyre was obliged to return to his regiment, it was arranged that Smith could drive him to the town in it, and ride back. For this purpose he took the saddle with him, and I was chosen for the journey. At the station the colonel put some money into Smith's hand and bid him good-bye, saying, "'Take care of your young mistress, Reuben, and don't let Black Oster be hacked about by any random young prig that wants to ride him. Keep him for the lady.' We left the carriage at the maker's, and Smith rode me to the White Lion and ordered the hostler to feed me well, and have me ready for him at four o'clock. A nail in one of my front shoes had started as I came along, but the hostler did not notice it till just about four o'clock. Smith did not come into the yard till five, and then he said he should not leave till six, as he had met with some old friends. The man then told him of the nail, and, and asked if he should have the shoe looked to. "'No,' said Smith. "'That'll be all right till we get home.' He spoke in a loud, off-hand way, and I thought it very unlike him not to see about the shoe, as he was generally wonderfully particular about loose nails in our shoes. He did not come at six, nor seven, nor eight, and it was nearly nine o'clock before he called for me, and then it was with a loud, rough voice. He seemed in a very bad temper, and abused the hostler, though I could not tell what for.' The landlord stood at the door and said, "'Have a care, Mr. Smith.' But he answered angrily with an oath, and almost before he was out of the town he began to gallop, frequently giving me a sharp cut with his whip, though I was going at full speed. The moon had not yet risen, and it was very dark. The roads were stony, having been recently mended. Going over them at this pace, my shoe became looser, and as we neared the turnpike gate, it came off.' If Smith had been in his right senses, he would have been sensible of something wrong in my pace, but he was too drunk to notice. 
Beyond the turnpike was a long piece of road, upon which fresh stones had just been laid, large, sharp stones, over which no horse could be driven quickly without risk of danger. Over this road, with one shoe gone, I was forced to gallop at my utmost speed. My rider, meanwhile, cut it into me with his whip, and with wild curses, urging me to go still faster. Of course, my shoeless foot suffered dreadfully. The hoof was broken and split down to the very quick, and the inside was terribly cut by the sharpness of the stones. This could not go on. No horse could keep his footing under such circumstances. The pain was too great. I stumbled and fell with violence on both my knees. Smith was flung off by my fall, and owing to the speed I was going at, he must have fallen with great force. I soon recovered my feet and limped to the side of the road, where it was free from stones. The moon had just risen above the hedge, and by its light I could see Smith lying a few yards beyond me. He did not rise. He made one slight effort to do so, and then there was a heavy groan. I could have groaned too, for I was suffering intense pain both from my foot and knees, but horses are used to bear their pain in silence. I uttered no sound, but I stood there and listened. One more heavy groan from Smith, but though he now lay in the full moonlight, I could see no motion. I could do nothing for him nor myself, but oh, how I listened for the sound of a horse or wheels or footsteps. The road was not much frequented, and at this time of the night we might stay for hours before help came to us. I stood watching and listening. It was a calm, sweet April night. There were no sounds but a few low notes of a nightingale, and nothing moved but the white clouds near the moon and a brown owl that flitted over the hedge. It made me think of the summer nights long ago when I used to lie beside my mother in the green, pleasant meadow at Farmer Gray's. Thanks for joining us for chapters 23, 24, and 25 of Anna Sewell's Black Beauty. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Greatest Love Stories. If you're enjoying our story, please do take a moment and send us a kind review. That would be appreciated very much. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Greatest Love Stories. Until next time, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.
You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.